Welcome to the Ego Sumvia podcast with me, Father Andrew Eber. And as always, I invite you to begin by joining with me in prayer. And this is the collect for this Sunday's Feast of Pentecost. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, who by the mystery of today's great feast, sanctify your whole church in every people and nation. Pour out, we pray, the gifts of the Holy Spirit across the face of the earth. And with the divine grace that was at work when the gospel was first proclaimed, fill now once more the hearts of believers. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God for ever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week, you may remember, we were talking about clerical dress and clericalism, and I had quite a long list of headings that I was just working through. We got, gosh, about halfway through, so still several headings on that list. And if you, by the way, can think of any other heading that ought to be there, do let me know. Anyway, the next words on that list say, Set aside to serve. Set aside to serve. This is one of the central paradoxes of the priesthood, which is perhaps not as well understood as it should be. So a little excursion now into the theology of holy orders. Consecration, priestly consecration, is by definition a setting apart or a setting aside. The Oxford English Dictionary, that enormous multi-volume one, says that to consecrate means to set apart a person or thing as sacred to the deity. And I've got here another dictionary which says that consecration is the act of separating from a common to a sacred use. So again, this idea of separating or setting apart, setting aside. Okay, so the priest like the religious brother or sister, is by consecration, by ordination, set aside from the world, separated from the world, taken out of the ownership of the world and given into the ownership of God. And the priest is therefore, in a fundamental way, always separate. However, the reason for the priest to be consecrated or set aside is in order for him to serve, for him to be free to serve. And this is the paradox. The priest is given to God so that he can be given to God's people. Hence, set aside to serve. There's a lovely homily by Pope Benedict XVI when he remembers the day of his own ordination to the priesthood, his own consecration, and he rem remembers actually realizing this truth. I belong in a new way to Christ and thus to others. The paradox of Christian priesthood is that only by being set aside, it's only by being separated that the priest can wholly serve the people of God. We belong to Christ in order to belong to others. Now, in our day, because of where our culture is at this moment in history, this paradox is not well understood. People understand the service bit. People like the service bit, but sometimes they don't quite understand or connect the separateness bit. 
and some people might be suspicious about the signs of that separateness, clerical dress, being called father, all that. Some people might even feel threatened by the separateness of the priesthood. But this paradox that I've described, being set aside in order to serve, has been at the heart of the Church's understanding of ordination since the very beginning, since the letter to the Hebrews, well, actually, in fact, really, since the crucifixion. This paradox that the priest, as I think again Pope Bendix says again somewhere, is set aside in solidarity, set aside to serve. Okay, so what's next on my list? Uh, the next item on my list reads, Clericalism works both ways. I guess it's a little bit like snobbery. There's snobbery and there's inverse snobbery. There are snobs who think you have to be terribly grand and speak and dress in a certain way, in a grand way. And then, of course, there are also inverse snobs who think you have to be off the street, be streetwise, speak street language, and you'll get this in school often if you speak in a quote-unquote correct way. If you're deemed to be posh, you get ostracized. So we all know this. There is snobbery and there is inverse snobbery. Clericalism works both ways. So, uh, two forms of clericalism. There is clericalism of priests and there is clericalism of the laity. So, first, clericalism of priests. And this is, you know, that terrible clericalism whereby priests are treated like little emperors or kings and can do no wrong. Or they look down on the laity or, or, or treat them in a hideously condescending way. Ghastly. But I have to say, if I'm honest, I don't really experience this in my life. Maybe if I was a priest in another country, it would be different, I don't know. But in this country, I don't really experience much of this treatment. I'm not saying it doesn't exist and one shouldn't guard against it. But again, if I'm honest, I'm not at all sure it is the real problem in clericalism today. Which brings me to the second form of clericalism, which is clericalism of the laity, or perhaps clericalization of the laity. This seems, to me at least, much more widespread in our country and deeply unhelpful, even pernicious. And this is the clericalism that says, for example, if you want to be a more active Catholic, the only way to do it is to do clerical stuff to do, so to speak, priestly kind of stuff. So this is the thinking that says, and this, alas, is very common these days, that if you want to be a more active Catholic, you must, for example, become a reader at Mass or an extraordinary minister of the Eucharist. That is, do something on Sunday in church somewhere near the sanctuary. Now, that's the other side of the coin. And that is the modern-day form of clericalism, if you like, and it's very prevalent. Uh, the only model for greater commitment within the church is the clerical model. Doing stuff around the sanctuary, that's modern clericalism. And it's also totally against the teaching of the Second Vatican Council. One of the great teachings of the Second Vatican Council was the teaching about the lay apostolate. The apostolate of the laity, recognising this great apostolate to which the laity are invited. So what is the lay apostolate and where does it take place? 
or we might say where and when does it take place to be more accurate. The lay apostolate, the task of the lay apostolate is to renew the secular world, to transform the secular world. In other words, as committed Catholics, the world in which we live and work and play, etc., etc. And there's a whole document on this from the Second Vatican Council on the lay apostolate, Apostolicum Actuositatum. Very important teaching document from the Council which says the laity are called by God to exercise their apostolate in the world. Called by God to exercise their apostolate in the world. And that then answers the question of where this apostolate takes place. It takes place, of course, in the world, and it takes place on Monday to Saturday. It doesn't mean doing churchy clerical stuff inside the church on Sunday morning. Now, all that serving is good. It's a great gift. It's very helpful in so many respects. It's important that it happens, but it is not the lay apostolate. So the really widespread clericalism today, I would suggest, is this sometimes unconscious or semi-conscious emphasis on doing stuff on Sunday morning inside the church rather than being visibly Catholic on Monday through to Saturday in the world. Because the world, the world from Monday through to Saturday, is in desperate need of that witness people who know their faith and actively live it in the world. That's what the world needs, and that's what the church needs. In fact, I would suggest that we need this, lay people who know their faith and actively live it in the world, far more than we need, for example, more priests. Because, as I say, the focus on the priesthood, on the role of the priesthood rather than that of the laity, is both clericalist and, in today's context, unhelpful. This is one of the problems with those, uh, let's say, of a liberal tendency, and this is an observation, not a condemnation. People who say, oh, we need married priests, and we need women priests, and we need whatever kind of priest, and this will somehow solve all our problems. And I want to say, can we just stop talking about the priests and priests and the kind of priests we need, stop talking about this just for a moment, and start talking about the people? Let's talk about the lay apostolate, because if you step back for a moment, if you step back and try to get a wider perspective, then surely the gaping absence in our Christian culture is not the absence of a certain kind of priest. It is surely and far more obviously the absence of a certain kind of laity. And again, this is, this, is not, this is not going to be a condemnation. This is, again, just an observation. I remember, um, I've told the story before, one of our seminarians, who before going to seminary spent a year working in an office, and the person on the other side of the desk from him in that office was also Catholic. And for a whole year they worked within a few feet of each other, and they never knew that they were both Catholic. For a whole year, because they never talked about it. And the tragedy is, I don't think that's unusual, that silence, that anxiety about showing your faith on public, that I think is quite common. But that is what we need to work on now, far more than any new model of priesthood. 
That's why I always say, make sure at the very least that people know you go to Mass on Sunday, for example. You know, for example, we all have conversations at work or at university about what we are doing at the weekend. Let people know at the very least that you go to Mass on Sundays and that it matters to you. And then beyond this, this means that um, as a community, we need to be discovering again and hearing again that call to the lay apostolate, which has never really been fulfilled. And now, gosh, now I've run out of time again. I've still got one more heading on my list, but that was really about liturgy and what happens inside the church and on the sanctuary. So perhaps we can leave that to another episode. So let's pause now and hear the gospel for this Sunday's Feast of Pentecost and my homily. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. In the evening of the first day of the week, the doors were closed in the room where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. He said to them, Peace be with you, and showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord, and he said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so am I sending you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. For those whose sins you retain, they are retained. The Gospel of the Lord When I think of Pentecost, I think of Christmas. Because the day of Pentecost that we hear about in today's first reading is a nativity for the church. The Holy Spirit and our mother Mary have an important role to play both at the first nativity in Bethlehem and at the second one in Jerusalem. So if you remember, the angel Gabriel who announces the first nativity tells Mary about the descent of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Gabriel says, and the power of the Most High will cover you with its shadow. And a child is born, a child who represents a radical new reality in God's relations with humankind. In the day of Pentecost, we have a second nativity. Mary is present again, surrounded by the disciples. Once again, the Holy Spirit descends, and once again, a new reality is born another new stage in God's relations with humankind. That new reality is, of course, the Church. Today, if you like, we celebrate the birth of the Church. Our Gospel takes us, however, not to the day of Pentecost itself, but to that moment 50 days earlier, when Jesus promised the disciples the Holy Spirit. And the really striking thing is how different the disciples are. How different they are before they have received the Spirit compared with that description of the day of Pentecost. Because it is actually the same room they are in, the same room on both days, but the people in the room have changed. 
In the Gospel, the disciples have locked themselves away. They are hiding behind locked doors, silent and isolated and afraid. At Pentecost, however, the Holy Spirit descends as promised, and the disciples are transformed. They are emboldened by the gift of the Spirit to go out and witness. They are sent out from their confinement in the upper room into the world to witness to Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to look very far to see the parallels with our own situation today. We who have been locking ourselves away for so many weeks. So I wonder whether this Pentecost could also be a nativity, a time of new birth for you and I. As the coronavirus restrictions begin to be relaxed, and we can unlock our doors and leave our homes more freely, will we, like those first disciples, go out emboldened by the Spirit? As you know, the season of Easter is the season of baptism, and one of the many powerful moments during the great liturgy of Easter, which you may have been able to do online, is when we renew the promises made at our baptism and renew our commitment to the Christian life begun at baptism. Pentecost now, of course, is the season of confirmation, when we are anointed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we are confirmed, we don't make additional promises that we can renew later on. But we can perhaps renew our experience of that gift of the Holy Spirit, and we can pray for a renewal of our own commitment to live that Christian life which we are empowered to do when we receive the Holy Spirit in our confirmation. We can remember, too, that when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we not only receive it at Christ's hands, for it is he who tells us, receive the Holy Spirit. We not only receive it from him, but we imitate him in accepting that gift. Christ himself is anointed with the Holy Spirit when he begins his ministry, and in our confirmation we are anointed, just as Christ was, to go out and witness to the good news. You might remember that Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord has been given to me, for he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives and to the blind new sight, to set the downtrodden free, to proclaim the Lord's year of favour. And so, as the coronavirus restrictions begin to relax, as we take those first steps back out into the world, let's remember that we are sent out into the world not just to resume ordinary secular life. We are sent out into the world as disciples of Jesus Christ, and sent out by Christ himself. As the Father sent me, he tells us, so I am sending you. As we begin to take up the freedoms and responsibilities of ordinary everyday life, let's remember that we also take up, once again, the freedom and the responsibility of our Christian life, sent out into the world to bring good news to the poor, especially perhaps the spiritually poor who have never known any principles or ethos other than the impoverished vision of the secular world sent out to proclaim liberty to captives, especially those trapped by the limits of that same secular culture and ideology, 
sent out to proclaim new sight to the blind, those unable to see any better way of living their lives than what has been portrayed to them on secular social media. This may seem a great challenge for us, but let's remember again that dramatic difference that the gift of the Holy Spirit made for the first disciples, how their anxiety and their timidity was transformed. Christ has sent us the Holy Spirit, just as he did the first disciples, and just as it was for them, everything is different after that gift. After all, if the experience of lockdown has taught us anything at all, it has surely taught us what is important in our life and what is not. Perhaps then, if we can renew our acceptance of this gift of the Holy Spirit, perhaps this Pentecost will be a nativity in your life and mine as well, emboldened to live out our Christian faith with a renewed joy and determination and a renewed commitment to following the Lord. So let's pray together now and in the days to come. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle therein the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit and we shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as we come to the end of this podcast, thank you so much for being with me. Do remember to click the follow button and follow this podcast if you don't do so already. And as always, do get in touch with any comments or questions you have, any suggestions for things we ought to cover. And you can reach me on my Diocese of East Angler email address, that's andrew.eburn at rcdea.org.uk. And I'll upload another episode next Sunday and look forward to joining you then. Let's end then, as we always should do, with the prayer of our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.